0: Hello again my friends, and welcome to another episode of Scary Stories from a Graveyard. I am happy to report that I am coming to you live or coming to you not quite live, but from a dark and stormy night. I do hope that you can hear what I'm hearing with the thunder and the rain. It's a lovely evening. Tonight, I come to you from Worsley, Worsley Cemetery in Vernon County, Missouri. There are approximately a thousand residents interred here. Now I'm going to tell you more tales from the collection known as Present at a Hanging and other ghost stories from Ambrose Bierce. I will be telling two of those stories at least tonight. I'm so hoping that I will have time to introduce you to a third as well with no further ado, we will begin. The first story is known as A Man With Two Lives. Here's the queer story of David William Duck, related by himself. Duck is an old man living in Aurora, Illinois. Where he is universally respected. He is commonly known, however, as Dead Duck. In the autumn of 1866, I was a private soldier of the 18th Infantry. My company was one of those stationed at Fort Phil Kearney, commanded by Colonel Carrington. The country is more or less familiar with the history of that garrison, particularly with the slaughter by the Sioux of a detachment of 81 men and officers, not one escaping through disobedience of orders by its commander, the brave but reckless Captain Fetterman. When that occurred, I was trying to make my way with important dispatches to Fort C.F. Smith, on the bighorn. As the country swarmed with hostile Indians, I traveled by night and concealed myself as best I could before daybreak. The better to do so, I went afoot, armed with a Henry rifle and carrying three days' rations in my haversack. For my second place of concealment, I chose what seemed in the darkness a narrow cannon, canyon leading through a range of rocky hills. It contained many large boulders, detached from the slopes of the hills. Behind one of these, in a clump of sagebrush, brush, I made my bed for the day, and soon fell asleep. It seemed as if I had hardly closed my eyes, though, In fact, it was near midday, when I was awakened by the report of a rifle, the bullet striking the boulder just above my body. A band of Indians had trailed me and had me nearly surrounded. The shot had been fired with an excruble aim (laughs) by a fellow who had caught sight of me from the hillside above. The smoke of his rifle betrayed him, and I was no sooner on my feet than he was off, and off his, and rolling down the declivity. I ran in a stooping posture, dodging among the clumps of sagebrush in a storm of bullets from invisible enemies. The rascals did not rise in pursuit, which I thought rather queer, for they must have known by my trail that I that they had to deal with only one man. The reason for their inaction was soon made clear. I had not gone a hundred yards before I reached the limit of my run, the head of the gulch which I had mistaken for a canyon. It terminated in a concave breast of rock, nearly vertical and destitute of vegetation. In that cul-de-sac I was caught like a bear in a pin. Pursuit was needless. They had only to wait. They waited, for two days and nights, crouching behind a rock topped with a growth of mesquite, and with the cliff at my back, suffering agonies of thirst and absolute, hopeless, absolutely hopeless of deliverance, I fought the fellows at long range, firing occasionally at the smoke of their rifles, as they did at that of mine. Of course, I did not dare to close my eyes at night and lack of sleep was a keen torture. I remember the morning of the third day, which I knew was to be my last. I remember, rather indistinctly, that in in my desperation and delirium I sprang out into the open and began firing my repeating rifle without seeing anybody to fire at, and I remember no more of that fight. The next thing that I recollect was pulling myself out of a river just just at nightfall. I had not a rag of clothing and knew nothing of my whereabouts, but all that night I traveled, cold and footsore, toward the north. At daybreak I found myself at Fort C.F. Smith, my destination, but without my dispatches. The first man that I met was a sergeant named William Briscoe, whom I knew very well. You can fancy his astonishment at seeing me in that condition, and my own at his asking who the devil I was. Dave Duck, I answered. Who should I be? He stared like an owl. You do look it, he said, and I observed that he drew a little way from a little away from me. What's up? He added. I told him that I had happened. I did. I told him what had happened to me the day before. He heard me through, still staring. Then he said, My dear fellow, if you are Dave Duck, I ought to inform you that I buried you two months ago. I was out with a small scouting party and found your body full of bullet holes and newly scalped, somewhat mutilated otherwise too. I am sorry to say, right where you say you made your fight. I come to my tent and I'll show you your clothing and some letters that I took from your person. The commandment has your dispatches. He performed that promise. He showed me the clothing which I resolutely put on the letters which I put in my pocket into my pocket. He made no objection, then took me to the commandment com- Commandant. Who heard my story and coldly ordered Briscoe to take me to the guardhouse? On the way, I said, Bill Briscoe, did you really and truly bury the dead body that you found in these togs? Sure, "Sure," he answered, just as I told you. It was Dave Duck, all right. Most of us knew him. And now, you damned imposter, you better tell me who you are. I. Give something to know, I said. A week later, I escaped from the guardhouse and got out of the country as fast as I could. Twice I have been back seeking for that fateful spot in the hills, but unable to find it. I do hope you can hear me well, my friends. This storm has seemed to pick up a bit. The next story is Three and One are One. In the year 1861, Barr Lassiter, a young man of 22, lived with his parents and an elder sister near Carthage, Tennessee. The family were in somewhat humble circumstances, subsisting by cultivation of a small and not very fertile plantation, owning no slaves they were not rated among the best people of their neighborhood, but they were honest persons of good education, fairly well-mannered and as as respectable as any family could be if uncredentialed by personal dominion over the sons and daughters of Ham. The The elder Lassiter had that severity of manner that so frequently affirms an uncompromising devotion to duty. And conceals a warm and affectionate disposition. He was of the iron of which martyrs were made, but in the heart of the matrix had lurked a nobler metal, fusible at a milder heat, yet never cool colouring, nor softening the hard exterior. By both hereditary her- by both heredity, environment something of the man's inflexible character had touched the other members of the family. The Lassiter home, though not devoid of domestic affection, was a veritable citadel of duty and duty. Ah, duty is as cruel as death. When the war came on, it was found in the family, as in so many others in that state, a divided sentiment. The young man was loyal to the Union, the others savagely hostile. This unhappy division begot an insupportable domestic bitterness, and when the offending son and brother left home with the avowed purpose of joining the Federal Army, not a hand was laid in his, nor not a word of farewell was spoken, not a good wish followed him out into the world, whether he went to meet with such spirit as he might whatever fate awaited him. Making his way to Nashville, already occupied by the army of General Buell, he enlisted in the first organization that he found a Kentucky Regiment of cavalry and in due time passed through all the stages of military evolution from raw recruit to experienced trooper. A right good trooper he was, too. Although in his oral narrative, from which this tale is made, there was no mention of that, the fact was, the fact was learned from his surviving comrades. For Bar Lassiter has answered here to the sergeant whose name is Death. Two years after he had joined it, his regiment passed through the region whence it ha- he had come. The country thereabout had suffered severely from the ravages of war, having been occupied alternately and simultaneously by the belligerent forces and a sanguinary struggle had occurred in the immediate vicinity of the Lassiter homestead. But of this the young trooper was not aware. Finding himself in camp near home, he felt a natural longing to see his parents and sister hoping that in them, as in him, the unnatural animosities of the period had been softened by time and separation. Obtaining a leave of absence, he set foot in the late summer afternoon, and soon after, the rising of the full moon was walking up the gravel path leading to the dwelling in which he had been born. Soldiers in war aged rapidly. And in youth, two years are a long time. Bar Lassiter found himself an old man, or felt himself an old man, and had almost expected to find the place of ruin and a desolation. Nothing, apparently, was changed. At the sight of each dear and familiar object, he was profoundly affected. His heart beat audibly. His emotion nearly suffocated him. An ache was in his throat. Unconsciously he quickened his pace until he almost ran with his, uh, ran his long shadow making grotesque efforts to keep its place beside him the house was unlighted the door open as he approached and paused to recover control of himself his father came out and stood bareheaded in the moonlight father cried the young man springing forward with an outstretched hand "'Father!' the elder man looked him sternly in the face, stood a moment motionless and without a word withdrew into the house. Bitterly disappointed, humiliated, inexpressibly hurt, and altogether unnerved, the soldier dropped upon a rustic seat in deep dejection, supporting his head upon his trembling hand. But he would not have it so, He was too good a soldier to accept repulse as defeat. He rose and entered the house, passing directly to the sitting room. It was dimly lighted by an uncurtained east window. On a low stool by the hearthside, the only article of furniture in the place, sat his mother, staring into a fireplace strewn with blackened embers and cold ashes. He spoke to her tenderly, interrogatively and with hesitation but she neither answered nor moved nor seemed in any way surprised true there had been time for her husband to apprise her of her of his guilty of their guilty son's return he moved nearer and was about to lay his hand upon her arm when his sister entered from an adjoining room looked him full in the face passed him without a sign of recognition, and left the room by a door that was partially behind him. He had turned his head to watch her, but when she was gone, his eyes again sought his mother. She, too, had left the place. Bald Lassiter strode to the door by which he had entered. The moonlight on the lawn was tremulous, as if the swor- as, if, as if the sward were a rippling sea. The trees and their black shadows shook as in a breeze. Blended with its borders, the gravel walk seemed unsteady and insecure to step on. This young soldier knew the optical illusions produced by tears. He felt them on his cheek and saw them sparkle on the breast of his trooper's jacket. He left the house and made his way back to camp. The next day, with no very definite intention... With no dominant feeling that he could rightly have named, he again sought the spot. Within a half-mile of it he met Bushrod Albro, a former playfellow and schoolmate, who greeted him warmly. "'I'm going to visit my home,' said the soldier. The other looked at him rather sharply, but said nothing. "'I know,' continued Lassiter, "'that my folks have not changed, but there have been changes.' "'Albro interrupted. "'Everything changes. "'I'll go with you if you don't mind. "'We can talk as we go.' "'But Albro did not talk. "'Instead of a house, they found only fire-blackened foundations of stone, "'enclosing an area of compact ashes pitted by rains. Lassiter's astonishment was extreme. "'I could not find the right way to tell you,' said Albro. In the fight a year ago, your house was burned by a federal shell. And my family, where are they? In heaven, my hope, all were killed by the shell. I believe we have time for one more story, my friends. And this one is named A Baffled, Aps- Apsuke- a- hmm. a Baffled Ab- 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 Abuscade. I got it in the end. <laughs> Connecting Reddyville and Woodbury was a good hard turnpike nine or ten miles long. Reddyville was an outpost of the Federal Army at Murfreesboro. Woodbury had the same relation to the Confederate Army at Tahoma. Four months after the big battle at Stone River, these outposts were in constant quarrel most of the trouble occurring, naturally, on the turnpike mentioned, between detachments of cavalry. Sometimes the infantry and artillery took a hand in the game by way of showing their goodwill. One night a squadron of Federal horse, commanded by Major Sidell, a gallant and skillful officer, Moved out from Readyville on an uncommonly hazardous enterprise requiring secrecy, caution, and silence. Passing the infantry pickets, the detachment soon afterward approached two cavalry vedettes staring hard into the darkness ahead. There should have been three. Where is your other man? said the major. I ordered Dunning to be here tonight. He rode forward, sir, the man replied. There was a little firing afterward, but it was a long way to the front. It was against orders and against sense for Dunning to do that, said the officer, obviously vexed. Why did he ride forward? I do d- don't know, sir. He seemed mightly restless, mighty restless. Yes, he was scared. <laughs> When this remarkable reasoner and his companion had been absorbed into the expeditionary force, it resumed its advance. Conversation was forbidden. Arms and accoutrements were denied the right to rattle. The horse's tramping was all that could be heard, and the movement was slow in order to have as little as possible of that. It was after midnight, and pretty dark, although there was a bit of moon somewhere behind the masses of cloud. Two or three miles along, the head of the column approached a dense forest of cedars, bordering the road on both sides. The major commanded a halt by merely halting, and evidently himself a bit skeered, rode on alone to Reconnoiter. My apologies. He was followed, however, by his adjutant, 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 and three troopers who remained a little distance behind and, unseen by him, saw all that had occurred. After riding about a hundred yards toward the forest, the major suddenly and sharply reined in his horse and sat motionless in the saddle. Near the side of the road, in a little open space, and hardly ten paces away, stood the figure of a man, dimly visible and as motionless as he. The major's first feeling was that of satisfaction in having left his cavalcade behind. If this were an enemy, and should escape, he would have little to report. The expedition was as yet undetected." Some dark object was dimly discernible at the man's feet. The officer could not make it out. With the instinct of the true cavalryman, and a particular indisposition to the discharge of firearms, he drew his saber. The man on foot made no movement in answer to the challenge. The situation was tense, and a bit dramatic. Suddenly, the moon burst through a rift in the clouds, and himself in the shadow of a group of great oaks, the horseman saw the footman clearly, clearly, in a patch of white light. It was Trooper Dunning, unarmed and bareheaded. The object at his feet resolved itself into a dead horse, and at a right angle across the animal's neck lay a dead man, face upward in the moonlight. Dunning has had the fight of his life, thought the major and was about to ride forward. Dunning raised his hand, motioned him back with a gesture of warning. Then, lowering the arm, he pointed to the place where the road lost itself in the blackness of the Cedar Forest. The Major understood, and turning his horse back to the little group that had followed him, and was already moving to the rear, in fear of his displeasure, and so returned to the head of his command. "'Dunning is just ahead there,' he said to the captain of his leading company. "'He has killed his man and will have something to report.' Right patiently they waited, sabers drawn, but Dunning did not come. In an hour the day broke and the whole force moved cautiously forward. Its commander not altogether satisfied with his faith in Private Dunning. The expedition had failed, but something remained to be done.' In the little open space off the road, they found the fallen horse. At a right angle across the animal's neck, face upward, a bullet in the brain, lay the body of Trooper Dunning. Stiff as a statue, hours dead. Examination disclosed abundant evidence that within a half hour, the Cedar Forest had been occupied by a strong force of Confederate infantry. An ambuscade. Well, those were some... Quite interesting stories. I do so enjoy bringing you these stories from Ambrose Bierce. And I do hope you enjoy them as well. And I certainly hope you enjoyed tonight's storm. I know I did. And I will continue to do so after I have had my time with you, my friends. And that time has come to an end. I hope to see you again all very, very soon. Have a wonderful evening and a great tomorrow. Goodbye.